This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and in the virtual studio of the performing arts, we have Remember Her Name, Flick Ford. <laughs> yeah, you better remember my name. <laughs> it's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> and out here on her own, well, not quite, Sally Christie. Kind of. Hello, Paul. Lovely to be back in the virtual studio. <laughs> Excellent. And lovely to see you both again. Now, uh, while you'll be he- hearing from Sally Flick and I singing The Body Electric about our first film, uh, we are most privileged to welcome to the show for his primal screen debut, film writer, historian and author of, among many other books, We Can Be Who We Are, movie musicals of the 1970s, Lee Gambon, who is joining us to chat about his enthusiasm for fame. How are you, Lee? Hey. I'm good. Thank you for letting me be on the show talking about this film. One of my favourites, a childhood favourite. We are delighted to have you. So as Melbourne continues through stage four social restrictions, we are continuing with our popular ISO Spotlight episodes to help you ride out this challenging time with some terrific movie recommendations you can seek out in the comfort of your own home while we await Uh, the reopening of cinemas we are paying long overdue tribute to one of the best in the business the director screenwriter and producer sir alan parker who died four weeks ago at the age of 76 we'll be digging into three of his 14 feature films first we'll attend new york's high school of performing arts in 1980s fame then we'll go through a painful divorce with 1982's shoot the moon and then we'll end with a voyage into the dark heart of the, of the Jim Crow South with 1988's Mississippi Burning. A really cheery bunch of films this week that we're looking at. They're really Such a all upbeat. happy, uplifting group. <laughs> also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Now, before we kick off, we'd just like to say a massive thank you to everyone who donated and subscribed to Triple R over during our initial Radiothon 2020 drive. Over 11,000 listeners have subscribed to the station thus far, but it is not over. Please head over to rrr.org.au from now until September 30 to donate or subscribe to Triple R and be in the running to win all sorts of awesome prizes. Just head over to rrr.org.au. For our director spotlights, we generally forego the news bulletin, but we thought we'd take a moment to mourn the sudden, actually kind of shocking passing of actor Chadwick Boseman at the age of 43. Boseman was most famous, of course, for playing Marvel's Black Panther, King T'Challa, as well as making a name for himself, playing several real-life trailblazing African-American figures, such as Jackie Robinson in 42, James Brown in Get On Up, 
and Thurgood Marshall in Marshall, as well as being a staunch activist for African-American rights and racial equality. It wasn't revealed until after he passed away that Bozeman had been diagnosed with colon cancer back in 2016 and spent the last four years undergoing treatment with chemotherapy while filming eight movies, including three appearances as Black Panther and his role in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which we reviewed a couple of months back. He had completed his final, final film role in August Wilson's film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which will be released to Netflix last year. I mean, everybody was completely blindsided by this. Mm. It's yeah, kind it was- of amazing that, um, you know, it, was, it was, wasn't made public knowledge. You can understand why in a lot of ways. But I just remember when he did start to lose weight and it was really noticeable and a lot of people commenting on that and now just understanding what he would have been going through is, is really quite devastating. Yeah, I was really shocked by this news. Yeah, it's it's quite a in such a short time he made such an incredible impression and um, yeah, Valet Chadwick Boseman. Mm. Now, everybody, please uh, let us introduce you to the late great film director Sir Alan Parker. Midnight Express, Fame, Mississippi Burning, Birdie, The Commitments, now a Vita. That's a varied lot. What is it that makes an Alan Parker film? I always think that uh, they all look like my films, you know, and just that I'm interested in lots of different things. It's either uh, I have an extraordinarily wide range, or I have no focus whatsoever, I don't know. It depends on <laughs> whether you like what I do or not, or not like it. But uh, just as, um, you know, I'm interested in different things. I always said that... At the end of a film, you're a different person than the person who began the film. And therefore, uh, you're interested in different things. Things have uh, different emphasis. And therefore, if you've done very serious political films, I, uh, I've done uh, to do something that's lighter, that, that has music, for instance, it just keeps you creatively fresh. Here's a few things you might not have known about Sir Alan Parker. Growing up on a council housing estate in Islington, his career, or Islington as it were, a career in film was never a consideration. An interest in photography led him to applying for a job in an advertising agency, but it was another hobby, writing, which caught the attention of his superiors and led him to a successful copywriting career throughout his early 20s, at which point he segued to directing commercials, where he met future producers and collaborators David Putnam and Alan Marshall. Parker and Marshall would soon form their own commercial production agency, which quickly became one of the national leaders in the field. After writing a film called Melody, which was made in 1971 by director Waris Hussain, Parker wrote and mortgaged his house in 1973 to direct a small film called No Hard Feelings, a love story set during the Blitz in London, during which Parker himself was born, which was bought by the BBC but not aired until 1976. After making a couple of short films, in 1975 he directed a telly movie, also set in World War II, titled The Evacuees, which won an international Emmy and the first of Parker's six BAFTA awards. The next year, he made his feature film debut with the family classic Bugsy Malone, a musical satire of gangster films cast completely with children where the guns shoot cream pies, led by a preteen Scott Bayo and Jodie Foster with music by Paul Williams. The film was a surprising success, winning five BAFTAs and becoming a bit of an institution on Australian TV in the early 80s. Soon after moving his career to America, uh, Parker sought the advice of and was subsequently mentored by four-time Oscar winner Fred Zinnemann, director of High Noon, From Here to Eternity, Eternity, Oklahoma, and Day of the Jackal, among others. Parker considered him a mentor until Zinnemann's death in 1997, 
As well as an award-winning filmmaker, Alan Parker is also an accomplished cartoonist who has published three volumes of his satirical doodles. After making 1978's Midnight Express, Parker crossed to America to make the musical Fame, a move which coincided with that of an unofficial pack of other products of the British advertising world, such as Ridley and Tony Scott, Adrian Lyne and Hugh Hudson, an unofficial British invasion whose innovative diffusion smokes visuals and ability to mix high genre and style with nat- naturalism changed US studio filmmaking forever. Which just about brings us to our first film of the evening. You had a bad night, man. That happens. Yeah, not to me, it doesn't. What do you want, insurance? You're in the wrong business. Performers aren't safe. We're the pie-in-the-face people, remember? Look, don't lecture me. All right, Sir Lawrence. Look, all anyone ever promised you was seven classes a day and a hot lunch. The rest is up to you, Ralph. Fame from 1980 is the third feature film directed by Alan Parker. At the New York City High School for the Performing Arts, students get specialized training that often leads to success as actors, singers, and dancers. This movie follows eight students, including the brazen Coco, Irene Cara, Chatty Lisa, Laura Dean, Insula Bruno, Lee Carreri, charismatic Leroy, Jean Anthony Ray, cultured Hillary, Antonio Franceschi, shy Doris, Maureen Teefee, Sensitive Montgomery, Paul McCrane, and Brash Ralph, Barry Miller, from the time when they auditioned to get into the school through their sophomore, junior, and senior years. Uh, first, let's uh, head to our special guest, Mr. Lee Gambin. What about fame makes you want to live forever? <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've got a long history with fame. I fell in love with it as a kid, uh, watching it You know, uh, late at night. I think Channel 9 aired it. Um, in the mid eighties and then I rented it and was obsessed with it. I think ultimately what I really love about it is its grittiness and it's unrelenting sort of, um, brutal sort of truth, um, and real sort of gritty, earthy, grimy kind of nature that the film has. And also the fact that it doesn't have any kind of closure that really haunted me as a kid. I was like, cause you've invested in this, in these eight kids, these eight teenagers wanting to thrive for, you know. Um, their success or whatever they want to do with their world in their artistic pursuits and et cetera. But then the film sort of closes with all of them sort of having really devastating kind of consequences and climaxes. And then the film sort of ends with, I sing the body electric. And I remember sitting there going, what the fuck happens to them now? Like, so that the beauty of that there where you sort of don't know what's going to happen to them or you're left with these um, uh, sort of open ends or, you know, uh, there's no sort of closure really haunted me and sort of stuck with me. I also love the fact that it's about, Ultimately, most of them are working class kids. They're mixed um, race kids. They're all from varied ghettos. Um, They're really earthy and sort of um, very real. Um, I love the sort of aesthetic of the film, the way that the school looks, the way that New York is presented. It's that really perfect period of the late 70s, early 80s, where it's really grimy and really sort of, you know, dark and nasty, that sort of height of, you know, uh, dangerous New York City. I believe Coco says something as they're crossing through Times Square where she talks about um, varied schools and the dangers of being at school, um, which is a great sequence um, that sort of, you know, foreshadows something that comes later, which is a lot darker. Um, but, yeah, I love the darkness of it, the the sort of the through line being that it's all about their plights and what their sort of dreams and ambitions are, but then the way the film sort of breaks it up um, following each each teenager and you never sort of lose track of them regardless if they're given a lot of screen time like Ralph or Doris or if they're given sort of lesser screen time like um, the Laura Dean character of Lisa 
But I think like when you follow them and just, just get snippets into their lives, it sort of works as a collage and a fab, uh, that makes up this fabric called fame. Um, and just about the sort of illusion of fame and the idea of fame and what it sort of means and doesn't mean and how it's so elusive and, you know, non-tangible. And also one thing that I really love about the film especially is the fact that you follow the plights of these kids and you're invested in them emotionally and you want them to succeed and be happy. However, there's that wonderful moment with Anne Mira, who plays the teacher, who is incredibly all about the realities of the world. And she screams at Leroy at one point. She says, all your kids think about, don't your kids think about anything else but yourself. And to have that come so late in the film and to have it so palpable and so powerful, it really kind of makes you go, fuck, I've just spent these two hours watching these kids all obsess about themselves and their own careers and their own world. Um, so when you have their, when they, that sort of is summarised by that one line, that wonderful line from Anne Mira and the way she delivers it, which is going through this ordeal with her husband dying, et cetera, it just sort of really sort of taps into that nerve. It hits that nerve of basically saying, yeah, we care about you. We care about your dancing, Leroy, and we care about you, um, you know, blossoming Doris, but ultimately you're also, you know, out there on your own, which also means selfishness as well. So it sort of plays on the, the human condition so beautifully because it, it's nuanced. It's not just one note. It's a really kind of complex piece that sort of, um, you know, dissects the human condition and the human plight in varied attributes because you do fall in love with these kids. They're really likeable and they're sad. You know, the Ralph Garcia monologues are incredibly heartbreaking, um, but you also ultimately know that they've got their goals and that's also what makes humans humans. They're very self-motivated. I felt, I remember the first time I saw Fame when I was much, much younger and I felt really shocked by it because it always seemed to be lumped in with um, things like Footloose and Flashdance and that was kind of my expectation for this film and it's definitely not that. Rewatching this yesterday, the thing that I think really struck me the most about it was um, what you were saying, Lee, that we get these small slithers into the lives of these characters. Um, sometimes, you know, we are seeing more of them, sometimes less. Uh, and it's a really interesting way to tell a story where we're not getting this uh, very different to Shoot the Moon where we're getting these fully realised characters. We're getting these um, small insights into these characters, but it's totally enough for us to be invested in them and we do really, you know, want want them to succeed. And it's, yeah, it is. It's really interesting to look at the way Parker has put this together um, and it works and it shouldn't when we have these kind of incomplete stories. Um, it was just the rhythm of the film, I think, is so incredible, especially that opening sequence with the auditions, the way that it flows, it's breathtaking. Like really editing, stunning editing. And also just going back to your point about the sort of slices of life, I feel like fame is an extension of a chorus line. So a chorus line comes out as a Pulitzer winning musical in the early seventies. That's about dancers on the line having to audition and basically go through a therapy musical mm. um, in order to get a job and you get a glimpse into their lives. And that's how fame kind of is like the teenage example of that. Yep, so with, yep. you know, with a chorus line, you have issues of your body and your parents and rape trauma and racial trauma and all this sort of stuff, racism, trauma, et cetera, blah, 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 embedded in that, in that piece. And then in fame, it's like a teenage example of it, a, of that, yeah. a teen angst sort of version of, of, of a chorus line, which is about people who are mainly in their twenties and early thirties. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it works. It works incredibly. That's the rhythm and the flow of this movie is I think, yeah, really like nothing else. It's really, mm. really special in that way. 
Mm, and it helps to have that contextualized, I think, because I was really taken back by how gritty it is, and especially like revisiting it. And it's actually a really difficult film to talk about because it's so iconic. I actually posted a video of my cat and uh, had a tiny like seconds of fame in it. And straight away, a friend of mine, Eleanor, contacted me being like, oh, you're you're watching fame. <laughs> and um, I mean, it is so iconic. I mean, like admittedly, she's a um, dance scholar. So it's like, of course, <laughs> of course she picked fame. But um, yeah, there's something fascinating about watching this film. And just looking at, um, we're talking. You were talking before about the editing being like really exceptional, and that is so apparent in these dance numbers. And there's a real energy to it, and it's wonderful. Sort of watching um, all these, all three films in close succession, um, because he's got such diversity. Like Parker is amazingly yeah. diverse as far as genre goes, and I feel like we've selected a really nice range for tonight's show because this is such a different kind of musical, and. Um, I don't know. I was really, um, it's yeah, kind of interesting that both of you, for both of you, this is something that you watched as a child because it was actually R-rated because of all the nudity. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's more about the, con. I think the content is actually quite um, adult. And I love that you picked out that scene, Lee, um, between the teacher because that was possibly the strongest scene for me. I just thought there was, he just, um, Parker really was able to bring out these amazingly um, authentic performances from them. And I, I really remember being quite surprised by how moved I was by that because there is a tendency for it to be, you know, they're focused, you know, they're peering on the girls through the chain, you know, a hole in the change room and, you know, you got these kind of, I think there's a lot of dark comedy and satire in this film that's really obvious and, of course, the title is ironic. But, um, yeah, I think that there's a darkness to it as well and that scene really captures it and, and an empathy to it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the film is kind of, um, there's tent poles within the film that are basically sort of an insight into the characters' sort of ordeals and their dilemmas and their struggles and their personal sort of struggles and, and, self, and issues of self-worth and stuff, and they're all incredibly dark. So if you look at the abortion monologue from Hillary or the monologues that Ralph gives or even just the interaction between, you know, um, uh, Coco and her, you know, the guy that's, you know, the, the corrupt um, filmmaker, quote-unquote. Francois. Yes, Francois. Yeah, Francois. But also just going back to what you were talking about with Alan Parker being such a diverse filmmaker, it's amazing how diverse his musicals are. So mm. you look at Bugsy Malone, which I feel is actually pretty dark as well. Like it's about it's kid-centric and it's a gangster period piece. But that film has a really got a grim aesthetic. Mm. <laughs> and if you rewatch it, you're like, fuck, this would never be made now. <laughs> Um, and then you look at something like a full-blown rock opera with Evita. Here's a treatment of Evita um, penned um, by Oliver Stone who wrote the screenplay adaptation. That's another totally different musical. So I love that these filmmakers of that period of the New Hollywood movement um, took on musicals of varied types. So you look at mm. even like Robert Wise does Sound and Music and West Side Story, totally different films. You look at Norman Jewison, and Jesus Christ Superstar and Fiddler on the Roof, incredibly different musicals. So when people talk about these filmmakers, um, doing musicals, even within that one genre, their films are so different and so and have their own aesthetic and their own voice and their own um, appeal and their own um, anger and their and their own you know um, reasoning behind the what they're saying or whatever. But yeah, no, I really love Parker's direction in Fame because I feel like he's such a British filmmaker making such an American product, and mm. his idea was to sort of tribute the MGM musical or the history of the MGM musical. And Fame is so far removed from what was happening in the forties in MGM, mm. but it's still him sort of tipping his hat to that legacy 
Mm. Um, and that's summarised with sequences like the fame number, you know, dancing on top of the um, the New York cabs, etc. It's kind of that that sort of expressionistic, escapist moments. Those those tiny moments in this very very grounded realist film, this urban nightmare, yeah. um, which what it is really. Well, that's the thing. He was aiming to kind of pay homage to the MGM stuff and to, and completely blow it up. Like, mm. like no sets. No, like, I want this whole, you know, very. And they ended up, they did end up having to build a school set in the end because the school didn't let them use the presses. Um, <laughs> even though it trades on it quote, now. Quote Paul is great. Um, I think a critic said, um, "Fame does um, to the high school of performing arts what Midnight Express did to Turkish prison." <laughs> <laughs> Because people, people, the, the the people who were in charge of the school were terrified of um, yeah. losing students because they receive fame and they, you know, they're on drugs. They're constantly swearing. There's all this, you know, sort of behaviour. So they were kind of scared of the yeah. reputation of the school performing arts. Ended up becoming a lightning rod for the place. But this is a film I came to really late. I I had to be kind of, I I almost had to be pushed into seeing this by my partner. Well, actually, no, I was curious because I'd heard a couple of people mention how dark it was. And it was like, I don't know. It's like performing arts school. It's like, is this going to be bloody glee, you know? And then I watched it. And I was Paul. So no. And then I saw it. I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Mm. Like it is so lived in and so clear eyed and so, um, but also so incredibly likable. And the music is so incredibly um, uh, uh, catchy and, and so many uh, great earworms here. Um, revisiting it for this, I just fell in love all over again. Um, the song. Stunning. Uh, yeah. So Dean Pitchford, a, ma- a master writer. You've got Leslie Gore who wrote Out Here on My Own. So you have to remember Leslie Gore's career as a musician, as a songwriter, you know, this voice for a whole generation of teenage girls during this period of the 60s. She pretty much sort of started the sort of narrative-based songwriting in pop music. You know, mm. Judy's Turn to Cry is like a sequel to It's My Party and I'll Cry with if I want to. Mm. So she had narrative-based musical uh, writing embedded in her in her fabric of writing music and that's how she worked and then she writes this incredible song out here on my own that Irene Cara sings which should have won the best Oscar um, song I love fame as much as anyone but I think out here on my own is just a masterful song but it's also the first film to have the, uh, two so- two songs nominated for an Academy Award yes which is amazing but Leslie Gore amazing work and also her brother Michael Gore um, so all these great songs, I sing The Body Electric, um, The Hot Lunch um, Jam. So the film, as you all probably know, was originally going to be titled Hot Lunch, but there was a porn film that was uh, made around the same time. Which <laughs> is, and a bit of New York slang yeah, as well. Was, yeah, Hot Lunch. <laughs> and apparently there was a subplot where Ralph Garcia's character would sell pot to people during lunch break, and that was a reference to The Hot Lunch. But then the porno came out and they changed it to fame. But, yeah, so there's all these, these wonderful sort of backstories to the film. But the songs, as you said, Paul, are brilliant and they come in right at the perfect moments and they sort of comment on what's going on with the film. So it's kind of like a, in a sense, definitely a diegetic musical. It's not an integrated musical, but it's um, sort of a Greek chorus thing. So they're sort of commenting on what's going on or they're an expression of the sequence that's, that you're seeing before you. But, I, yeah, I really love the way the songs sort of, I, I don't know, comment on character and, and the personality of each character and also the situation that's going on and moves the, the film forward quite smoothly. There's no sort of um, awkward moments throughout the film either. No, it's wonderfully diegetic. And the two and a, nearly two and a quarter hours, but it just flies by. And mm. all of these characters just feel so incredibly 
yeah, again, lived in, realistic. Um, there, there, there's, there's a real sense you're getting to kind of know these kids, and like you say, you kind of want to know what happens to them uh, when the film closes, which you, you know, don't unless you watch the series, which I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so, okay, let me just digress on the series a second. I actually have been revisiting the series because I was held it. I, I grew up with it, but I remember the series being very different to the film. Obviously, the film is very dark and grim and grimy, but the show isn't. However, when you watch the series again, there it, it is sort of still uh, you know a dramatic piece. There's, there are episodes that deal with drug addiction, and there's a really intense gay episode called Best Buddies, um, which is really it got Richard Bright as the homophobic father, amazing. Mm. And there's all these sort of you know um, there's an AIDS episode, there's all these sort of things that happened in that show which I thought wasn't going to be the case because I thought the show was going to be a fluffy sort of light thing, but it's not at all. So it's got this kind of darkness in there as well, um, but just for a television um, audience and also the change of characters, the way they make Paul McCrane's character straight in the uh, fame series because I remember Vito Russo writing in, writing in the cellular closet, you can't have the Monty character be gay in the TV series because you'll have to address that eventually mm. <laughs> in the show and we're not ready for that, blah, blah, blah. But... Um, the transition from film to, to TV is really, I love that, that history of that. When you look at Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, or all these films that sparked TV, MASH, and yes. some succeeded and some didn't, and some were very different. I feel like fame's aesthetic and tone is very different in the transition, but there are seeds of the darkness from Alan Parker's film in that series as well. Just rewatch it and you'll, and trust me, you'll find it. <laughs> so you can watch the film fame, uh, which is now available to rent or buy via YouTube, Google play and Apple TV. Uh, Lee, are you going to join us for the rest of the show? Or are you, sure. Are you, if you want me to, sure. We, we would love you to. You are now listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, special guest star Lee Gambon, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So tonight on Primal Screen, we are doing a spotlight on the films of Alan Parker. And please join us by the device of your choice for our second film of the evening. You don't understand? I worshipped you. Well, then for God's sakes, George, why didn't you treat me that way? You were always yelling. You were always so angry. You have such a terrible temper. Well, you know I don't mean it. Tell that to the children, George. I was afraid, don't you understand? Afraid of what? I couldn't hack it. I felt like I was swimming the English Channel with a 50-pound weight around my neck. That's my mother's line. Yeah, well, your mother's done a lot of drowning. You leave my mother out of this! Shoot the Moon from 1982 is the fourth feature film directed by Alan Parker. George Albert Finney and Faith Diane Keaton have been married for 15 years and are parents to four children. George has become a successful novelist, leaving Faith to run their home and raise their kids as well as her own career. But as the years gone by, so it seems as they love for one another. When George is revealed to be seeing another woman, played by Karen Allen, Faith throws George out and their impending divorce has a devastating effect on their four kids, most notably their eldest, Cherry, played by Dana Hill. As Faith begins to find love again with a contractor, played by Peter Weller, who's building her a tennis court, George struggles with the new shape his life is taking, as well as his relationships with his kids and Faith going forward. Flick, this was your choice for this evening. Had you seen this before? No, it's been a film that I've wanted to see for so long. I've heard so many good things about it. I love Diane Keaton. Um, and so, I was, yeah, it's just one of those ones that I had always heard reference and never got around to watching. So I thought this was a good opportunity to shine a spotlight on it. Um, I also just really genuinely like divorce films. I don't know what that says about me, but um, especially watching Marriage Story last year, I kind of um, went back through some of the films, particularly in the um, 
late 80s um sorry a late uh 70s and and onwards where there was this like real kind of glut of divorce films so um yeah this is a this is a wonderful uh wonderfully written uh film it was really great to have a little clip from that because the um the screenplay was written by Bo Bo Goldman who who also did One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest and uh Scent of a Woman and I think the script is really where the strength of this film lies and um, both Goldman and Parker used to meet up and talk about the film and to develop and brought in a lot of their own experiences to it. In fact, someone once commented, I heard this on a podcast about um, the fact that uh, Keaton and Finney, who play the married couple, um, look actually quite a lot like Parker and his um, first wife, Annie. So I thought that was quite interesting, yeah. like, maybe without realising, choosing these actors that at least physically look like a lot, a lot like him and his ex-wife. Um, this is a really fascinating film. I, it's prompted a lot of really interesting conversations. Well, I had a good chat to my dad about how excellent uh, an actor Albert Finney is. Um, mm-hmm. I'd seen, main, I mainly knew Finney from like Aaron Brockovich and Big Fish and my dad was like, what? Like and listed <laughs> all of these films from his career. about. So it was a bit of a generational gap there. Um, I also had a really good chat to Daniel James who hosts uh, The Mission on uh, Tuesday nights and he was talking about Diane Keaton and how um, how similar she is to Jack Lemmon about the way that they both kind of walk this fine line between comedy and tragedy and pathos and and that sentiment is so beautifully captured in Shoot the Moon. So I'm, I'm glad that I picked it. Um, it's the performances, you know, that really hold this film together and... Um, I think the wonderful thing about Alan Parker is that he gives his act, his his actors through all of these films this space to move around and kind of walk in and out of the frame. And particularly with this warring couple, you get such a sense of the how their behaviour changes. There's this wonderful um, moment when Keaton is um, she meets uh, the guy who's come around to install a tennis court, and the chemistry, like the kind of flirty chemistry between the actors, is so palpable and it's a wonderful scene it's how they're moving their bodies it's the little smiles but then when she's talking having an argument with her husband or her ex-husband there's this there's this complete shift in how she's acting so I loved those like really delicate shifts and I have to say okay um I don't think it's a spoiler because this film's been out for so long but the final three minutes or five oh minutes of God. this film are ridiculous uh so there is there's certain moments in this film where I just my jaw just dropped uh several moments Mm. there are a few scenes that are maybe a bit too over egged but I still love it I think there's something about it that just brings it all together and there's so much realness in this film so that's I definitely check out shoot the moon this was the first time I had seen this as well and it Blew my mind. I mm. absolutely loved it. Like I loved it so much, um, way more than I assumed I would. But it was, oh, how do I even describe? I just, obviously their performances were absolutely incredible. But um, the one for me that really stole the show is Dana Hill in this mm, film. She absolutely. is so amazing. So she plays the um, eldest daughter who is um, struggling the most from their divorce. Um, She is, yeah, really absolutely mind-blowing in this film. But uh, there was what you were mentioning before, Flick, there are scenes in this that I found really shocking. Like I found at times um, I didn't find it to be perhaps over the top like like you did. I, I... That kind of, I guess, that anger and aggression um, that comes out of the heat of the moment 
not that I'm saying I understand it, but I can oh, definitely yeah. see that kind of thing happening. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and we get these really fully realised characters in this film where we see this sadness and this anger and they're constantly shifting with their emotions with each other, which is, um, yeah, really profound. And going back to what we were talking about before, I guess, with fame and looking at the diversity of Parker's career, um, this, yeah, really shows it. I think it was... God, I'd seen quite a lot of his films before I realised had made the connection that he had directed The Wall and he had directed mm. The Commitments and he had directed, you know, Mississippi Burning and all this sort of stuff because they seem so completely different and this yeah. is another great example for that. But, um, yeah, just I really loved this movie. I'm really grateful that you picked this flick because I just yeah, loved same. it so much. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching it being like, yeah. yes, good Yeah, pick. I loved it. <laughs> good, good pick, All gone flick. bad. <laughs> uh, Lee. Your yeah, I'm, with, I'm with you, Flick. I'm a big fan of the late 70s, early 80s divorce movies, yeah. repercussions <laughs> of divorce movies, and they're great. And also um, those films that sort of tap into men sort of fumbling in the dark when their wives have left them. Mm. Um, you think of Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. And then also, speaking of Diane Keaton, she does a film later, after, uh, I think maybe six or seven years after Shoot the Moon, she does uh, Baby Boom, which is an executive struggling with being a mum and being a, a professional woman in the mar- in the marketplace. But that whole wave of those movies is really interesting. This film, um, yeah, it is, it's a powerful piece. It also does showcase the, the, the talents, of course, of its leads. Um, and this is Diane Keaton sort of coming off the, um, you know, a few years earlier, 1977, doing the magnificent Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is one has one of the most harrowing endings ever in film. Uh, if you haven't seen it, find it and see it and you'll know what I'm talking about. But that sort of really proved to the world that she was more than a comedian. Not that, you know, being a comedian is just is lesser. Yeah. But more than had, any whore. Yeah, she, yes, yeah. exactly. This she had this amazing, amazing dramatic ability as a performer. Um, and also Albert Finney, this is after him doing something like Wolfen, which I really champion. People sort of poo-poo it. Uh, I think it's a great fun werewolf movie. Not maybe not fun, pretty dry, but mm. him sort of coming off that. But also Dana Hill, Sally mentioned her amazing actress, sadly died very early, um, died of a diabetes-related illness, um, fell into a coma and passed away. Um, she was mainly known for doing voice work. She was a, in cartoon animation um, film history. And it, it's funny that we're talking about this film now because just recently I wrapped the commentary for Jetsons, the movie from 1990, and she's in there. She plays um, one of Alroy's friends, um, Teddy Two, a robot. Um, <laughs> but she, she was a wonderful actress. Most people probably recognise her from Family Vacation, so yep. they probably remember her as Audrey, um, Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo's daughter. But, yeah, Shoot the Moon, yeah, stunning. One of those great entries in that whole wave yeah. that Flick talked about, the, the divorce. And <laughs> and, and, and also, and also written point. by Bo Goldman who wrote yeah. one of my favourite biopic musicals from the year before fame, The Rose. Mm. <laughs> he also, and it's also worth mentioning, two of the daughters of sitcom royalty as well. There's Tracy Gold who wound up in Growing Pains yes. and Teeny Others from uh, Family Ties. Mm. I, yeah, this film, there's certain scenes, like that, the ending of it, like this, the way this film opens and closes, I wasn't mm. prepared. The The opening shot is this happy family. It's Diane Keaton and the kids all sort of joking and, and, and you know, like she's doing her makeup and the kids are telling what to do. Meanwhile, Albert Finney by himself walks to a room, sits down and starts and bursts into tears. And it's one of the saddest openings. I've yeah. I've seen I can remember seeing to a movie, and and then you know the reason for that turns out to be interesting, um, but as an image as a way to start a film I was just instantly hooked and the ending of this film my God like 
there are there are volcanic displays of emotion at various times during this film and it's funny because going through parker's films i find that his films are 95 percent naturalistic and five percent heightened that's like they're putting it and when it does go heightened it's yeah yeah it's great like there's always a moment there's moments in all these films where kind of you have a character who feels like they're kind of making a speech making having a movie moment but then 95 percent of the time everything feels so completely Mm. naturalistic and lived in um yeah this is some of the best work finney finney and keaton have ever done the kids are all great but yeah dana hill in particular is bloody heartbreaking Mm. um there's yeah there's um certain small moments in this that just really really get to you um as a child of divorce as well you know there's there's i'm sure there's moments that just sort of sneak under my guard and and hit me in the heart yeah i it's not the easiest film to seek out um it is it is available to rent on 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 apple tv rent or buy i absolutely urge you if you've not heard of it please seek this out i think I think it's a I think it's a real winner, and it's and it's the it's a film that I think really gets the emotional, the emotional violence in a, a dying relationship, and 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 in a divorce, and and you know in those sort of moments, I I yeah I will say that there's a moment with with Diane Ke- with Albert Finney and Diane Keaton's father, which is a little odd and probably was slightly like hmm that was bizarre, mm. but. Um, but I think the rest, the rest of the film is so absolutely beautiful and watertight, and just and just bruising. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love this. So, Shoot the Moon is now available to rent or buy via Apple TV. Um, you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You are listening to Primal Screen on 3 Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, special guest star Lee Gambon, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So we have been looking at the films of Alan Parker tonight. We've talked about fame. We've talked about Shoot the Moon. We have one more to go. Please join us in the living room for our final film of the evening. What's the score, Mr. Barber? St. Louis on top, five to nothing. What inning is it? Bottom of the seventh. You like baseball, do you, Anderson? Yeah, I do. You know, it's the only time when a black man can wave a stick at a white man and not start a riot. Mississippi Burning from 1988 is the eighth feature film directed by Alan Parker. Inspired by true events, two FBI agents investigating the 1964 murder of civil rights workers uh, seek to breach the conspiracy of silence in Jessup County, a small southern town where segregation divides black and white. Ward, played by Willem Dafoe, is a straight arrow by the book Federal Agent, whose methods conflict and contrast with the small-town ways of his partner, Anderson, played by Gene Hackman, a former Mississippi sheriff. Together, they attempt to get to the heart of the violence, with all roads leading to the Jessup County Sheriff's Office and the Ku Klux Klan. Sally, I'm tipping you're familiar with this. Uh, how, how, what was it like uh, revisiting uh, Mississippi Burning? <laughs> quite a long time since I'd seen Mississippi Burning and to be honest it felt quite painful to watch um uh, of course a kind of this kind of movie all these movies are painfully painful in some way to watch but at this particular moment it felt quite devastating going and looking at a film that was made in the 80s about um unrest that happened in the 60s when there's still so much of this unrest and these issues that are devastating around the world so um it felt 
yeah, pretty hard to watch it sort of in that context. But um, having said that, it is still a really great detective film. It, you know, Defoe and Hackman work really well as the good cop, bad cop. Um, but, yeah, it is. How much of this is based on fact? Do we, do we know? Well, it, it's fairly loose. Yeah. But it's yeah. allowed to be. It's a film. It's not a documentary. It's allowed to be fairly yeah, loose. Well, I think the issue is, and like there was a recept, the reception of it, even at the time, was was quite um, problematic because I, I can I can definitely see this, and I think um, it's almost like you have to divide up the film into two ways because you know the main argument against it is that it's telling uh, a very it's a bit of a it's a whitewashing of a black story, and I, I you, it's I think that that is very true, and uh, I did really enjoy this film, but I think that that is just to have to understand that limitation for it before kind of getting into it like the um I thought one scene that really picked that out was the way in which they focused in on Frances McDormand's face and she's crying and there's I think that that was something that and even the focusing in on these sort of white CIA CIA agents FBI yeah yeah yeah, FBI sorry um agents you know the I think there is a lot of um, problematic material in this film in terms of like the way in which the the black characters are often presented as victims and it's really harrowing scenes. But then when the emotionality of it is is kind of ascribed to the white characters, it is very problematic. That aside, this is such a sharply written um, film, much like all of pa- Parker's work, where you the like you were saying before, Paul, the um, the opening scenes of his films are so um, evocative, mm. and I think he's just got this wonderful sense of pace in this film. I really loved um, Gene Hackman's performance, and and of course Willem Dafoe. I thought this is and Frances McDormand, like they're all exceptional actors. So um, I just thought it was worth mentioning that kind of like yeah. That, discomfort at the way in which this story is being told i think you're right and 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 parker has claimed look this is not a film about this you know it's not the totality of the civil rights experience or the black experience in the jim crow south it's a detective story with this as a backdrop and i think you're right i think there is an asterisk you kind of need to put next to this film it's like Yeah. yeah it is this sort of through this white lens on the other hand is there's there's not much more fun than watching Gene Hackman just going around getting completely up the ass of racists. I love it so much. Grabbing, I just love it. grabbing the balls of yes. <laughs> the Gene, Gene Hackman giving shit to and kicking the ass, kicking the hell out of racists. And it's got a hell of a cast as well. Yeah. Um, Brad Dorif in particular is is terrifying. Oh, that's, he that's, is. That's, so when I saw this for the first time, it was the same time as I saw um, Ragtime for the first time, Millish Foreman's adaptation of that famous sweeping novel um and for some reason i must have rented mississippi burning and ragtime at the same time in my early teens and watched mm-hmm. them so my brain always connects them and brad Dourif is in both but i just want to um uh, champion a film about the ku klux klan that i really love from earlier and it's a film called storm warning that people should check out with um doris day ginger rogers and ronald reagan which is sort of mirrored on um, street car named Desire in a, in a bizarre sense. But it basically, um, Ginger Rogers witnesses a murder. Um, the person who murders someone ends up being Doris Day, who's her sister, he, her fiance, who's part of the Ku Klux Klan. And you go through this sort of journey with her. And Reagan play, Ronald Reagan plays the cops that have investigating it. Check it out if you haven't seen it. But a stunning film, very different to <laughs> Mississippi Burning. But I think, yeah, my, my, I haven't seen Mississippi Burning 
since ages. So I can't really comment on it at the moment, besides me remembering being a teenager and seeing Brad Dourif and that and Ray Diamond. <laughs> but there is a sentiment at the end of the film, which I found was interesting. That sort of like this. Ray Diamond deals with race as well. Sorry, that's my connection. Yes, sorry, sorry. Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> there is a sentiment about that Willem Dafoe's character says about, you know, we're all culpable. Like, like, you know, all the white people have sat there and watched this happen. Even if you're not directly involved, if you've sat there and watched it, you like, we're all culpable, which is not a sentiment I feel like a lot of films really got into. You know, it was always like the people directly involved in their situations rather than even so, you know, so-called good white people are still mm. responsible for this. And I felt like it was a little ahead of its time in sort of getting at that particular sentiment. Well, I mentioned uh, Jewison earlier, but In the Heat of the Night does that. There's, there are mm. those great films, that there's examples that do that, which, which is cool, very good. Yeah. But yes, uh, you're right. Yeah, there's definitely two levels to look at this film. It's both an incredibly enjoyable, um, beautifully constructed and, and deeply empathetic uh, detective story. But there's also this kind of white, little bit white saviour, white perspective on, on what is a black story. Um, so Mississippi Burning is now streaming on Stan and is available to rent or buy via iTunes, via YouTube, Google Play, and Apple TV. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Now, uh, on tonight's ISO Spotlight on the films of Alan Parker, we reviewed Fame, now available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple TV, and Google Play. Shoot the Moon, now available to rent or buy on Apple TV. And Mississippi Burning, now streaming on Stan and available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple TV, and Google Play. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Uh, Please join us next week for our next ISO Spotlight, which is our first one not on a director, but on the reigning monarch of Australian film editors, Jill Bilcock. Um, So that's fun. We got a little. We might have a little surprise. Yes. Uh, we'll reveal on our socials later in the week. Um, so please stay tuned to our. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So a huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. Killer Carl Chapman for paneling and providing producing assistance for our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 